You're in luck, because today, rather than listen to me drone on, we have our interview with Dr. James White to bring a little bit of class to this place. Welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer, and this is my classy wife, Nikki. Hello. (laughs) And we don't want to belabor this anymore, so let's just get right to the interview. All right, well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. White. We are certainly pleased to have you and uh, very honored that you would jump on our our little podcast here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good to be with you. So um, just for anybody listening, obviously the people that we know are aware, but I got in contact with you. um, Just, I guess, uh, luckily you are on Twitter, I was following you and you just happened to be looking for a church in our local area and just kind of on a whim and a prayer, I reached out and said our church would love to have you and um, you were kind enough to say that sounds great and so I basically offered up our church without getting any of the pastor's approval <laughs> and thankfully uh, Pastor Kane's a good man and he agreed to it and then um, it worked out well for us. We enjoyed yes. it. Yes, it was, uh, everybody was real kind and um we didn't get to get to do the debate we wanted to do, but uh, that's not overly shocking either. But hey, uh, <laughs> we, we tried and and uh, made some good contacts down there. And uh, uh, the Lord d- delivered us from uh, the closest call we've ever had while driving the new uh, the new unit uh, right there in uh, that area. The, I think it was the morning I left. Yeah, it was the morning I left. Uh, so I don't know if you saw the video of that, but no, you have honestly- some... We told you, you the folks that had just come over to our house today, they told us, and we didn't know that you had a close call there. And so they showed us the video and <laughs> that little area that you had the close call, there's probably an accident on that exact spot three times a week. Really? Yeah. It it's, doesn't look like it's really well laid out, but um, uh, little Chevette's probably should not pull out in front of 18,000 pound vehicles. <laughs> Uh, thankfully I was going less than the speed limit or that would have been the end of that. So anyways, but, uh, Lord, Lord worked it all out. So it was good to get, get a chance to be down there. And, uh, I don't know how things are going to work out in, uh, late January, but I'm supposed to be going the Southern route. We'll see, uh, maybe coming in the general area again, but we'll see. Have okay. you made any headway with uh, Dr. Stauffer there, or maybe we can work on oh, that? Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I'm sure he's uh, he has so many electrical outlets to do in the new in the new church that he'll, he'll be at that till at least 2030. Yeah, it's time consuming. Well, um, we certainly loved when you did come down here. Honestly, that's the first time I ever heard you really just preach a Sunday sermon. You know, we're so used to listening to debates by you and um, that sort of stuff that this yeah, I think what you did was basically reading and interpreting the Greek text right. just sort of real time from, I believe it was the book of Mark mm-hmm. and just really fascinating to hear. And, yeah, you know. I definitely learned something new. I even had our kids listen to one of your debates so they would kind of know who you are. Our boys are 13 and we got a uh, 11 year old daughter and eight year old, not that she's that into it, but I had them listen at least to one of your debates uh, with Silverman. I don't even know how long ago that was, but. Oh, Wow. So there was, was something they could grasp, you know. Right. That, that was supposed to be with uh, Christopher Hitchens. And he had actually signed a contract. And then two weeks after that, he got his diagnosis of esophageal cancer. And of oh, course, wow. as everybody knows, he, he died. And so Silverman took his place, which okay. Silverman uh, isn't even with American Atheists anymore because uh, he got in trouble with the Me Too movement. Uh, so, okay, there's uh, a lot I don't know. And I kind yeah, of wish he said yeah. some inappropriate things in that debate. And I was like, oh, I didn't know about that. Didn't need my kids <laughs> hearing that. But yeah. they definitely, I think they'll benefit, you know, be prepared if they, you know, those common atheist questions and challenges. That's what's out there. Yeah. They, yeah. He's, he's, he'd be more representative than Christopher Hitchens. Honestly, Hitchens was brilliant. Um, Silverman, that's not a term I would ever use of, of him. Would be yeah. Really, um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, the, one of the things that you did preach when you were down here, or not preach as so much, but as teach, and it was new to me. I, I mean, I'm new to this part of Florida, and I didn't realize that this King James only was really a thing until just before you came down. I actually had somebody on Facebook reach out to us, you know, and ask him, hey, what translation do you guys read? And I had mentioned, oh, I'm currently reading an ESV Bible. 
And then he laid into me with King James is the only inspired text from God. And I was like, what is this? Right. And then apparently listening to your talk, I mean, you were learning about this and back in, you said high school and then. Yeah. Yeah. Late, late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, just obviously all of us aren't quite as learned in this area as you and something I was curious about just to have in our arsenal for those of us who might, especially in this region of the world, run into this, just a, you know, one or two points to at least get them thinking, obviously you're not going to win them over in a, a short 10 minute argument probably, but one or two points to sort of open their mind or kind of see where they may be wrong that we could use. They might want to chew on, I guess. Right. Right. Well, you know, I've, I've actually, um, back in, uh, 2017, May of 2017, I was, uh, uh, one of the speakers at the Shepherds Conference in Germany. We, we met in Wittenberg um, for the anniversary of the Reformation. And I was teaching in, there in Germany. And I was sitting in one of the only places in Wittenberg where you can get a really good cheeseburger. Um, and um, these young students came in, they recognized me. And so we started talking. You got to realize in Germany, uh, most Germans can speak better English than, than most Americans can. Um, and so it was very easy to, to communicate. I can communicate in German a little bit, but they can do English a whole lot better than I can do German. Anyway, um, interestingly enough, that was their question was they were encountering not so much King James onlyism, obviously, but a related movement called TR onlyism, Textus Receptus onlyism, um, the Greek text that was translated by the King James translators. Okay. And so it's not just in the south of, of the U.S. Uh, when I first started studying it, um, when I first started hearing about it, that's where it was primarily located at. And um, for example, when I wrote the King James Only Controversy, almost no one at Bethany House Publishers, which was up in Minneapolis, had ever even heard of it. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, my editor uh, was well aware of how big it was and how many Christian bookstores were always facing it and stuff like that. And so he was able to sort of overcome that. But yeah, it, it, it's global in some ways, and yet really, really found in a focused way in the American South, hmm. uh, but not just there. Um, it, it's, it's all over the place. And so we have, uh, every, every place I go, I was just a G3, and you get to greet people and talk to people at, uh, at, at your booth and stuff like that, and so many of them. Um, that was where they came to know who I was. They, many of them would say, I heard, I first heard your name from the pulpit and we were being warned to never listen to you, that you're satanically inspired, um, that, that you're an enemy of the truth. And I, I'm, and they said, it was just so often that once I saw over in the side panel on YouTube or something, a. Uh, uh, a debate from you it was sort of like man i gotta i gotta find out what this guy's about because man they're just talking about him constantly and they'll click on a debate where i'm i'm debating um a mo in a mosque in south africa or in london or debating islam or roman catholicism or whatever and they listen to it and they're like uh why are we saying that this guy is is like satan incarnate what what's going on here and it just it's not just one thing that gets them to start thinking most people that are involved in really strict king james only churches um already have a few things in the back of their mind where they've recognized inconsistencies but they are desperately afraid to ask questions because you're not supposed to ask questions. If you ask questions, you're questioning the word of God. Oh, so what people need to understand is in, in really strong King James only churches, the equation is the King James Bible alone equals the word of God alone. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't know a lot about the history of the transmission of the text. That's why we did what we did when I was there in Florida, went over, you know, how these books came to be in our possession and how they came to be collected over time and 
I showed pictures of various the early manuscripts and and talked about the development of of uh, uh, you know, Paul writes his epistles as individual epistles, but over time they become collected together into, into one, uh, one book and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so a lot of, a lot of IFB folks and non-IFB folks, independent fundamentalist Baptist folks, just don't know what the history is and therefore think the Bible has always just had the form we have it in today. That's and when they, when they hear uh, a conflicting narrative when they hear about the development over the time over time or or things like that they just don't have the background to be able to to check for consistency and king james onlyism is dependent upon people not knowing the history of the text not knowing that the king james was not the first english translation and uh, that there were english translations before it and that it's gone through various permutations itself and that what everyone's carrying around today is the 1769 Blaney revision, but it's not the 1611. And, and all that historical stuff, most people just don't know. I was raised in the King James myself. No one ever told me anything like that. No one even talked about anything like that. And in fact, there was, even in my background, somewhat. Now, my dad was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, so it, it, it was muted. Uh, but in a lot of the churches we were in, even having an interest in that kind of stuff was sort of like, why would you really be interested in that? Isn't, isn't your King James Bible as you have it today, the word of God enough for you? You know, that kind of a, of a situation. And so uh, when, you, when you get a chance to talk to these folks and like in your situation, maybe give a defense of the ESV, um, one of the first things you have to do is challenge people to, interestingly enough, the same thing I challenge Muslims. Um, I say to Muslims in my debates with them, you have to use the same standards in analyzing my scriptures as you use in analyzing yours. You can't have different sets of scales. And King James onlyism is dependent upon having one set of standards for the King James and a completely different set of standards for every other translation of the Bible. And I suppose one way of sort of cracking the door open is to point out that that's not what the King James translators told us. Most King James Bibles published today don't include the rather lengthy epistle that the translators wrote to the reader. It's available online everywhere. And some of the nicer editions will have it printed with it. But if you track it down and you read what the translators themselves said, they use the same methodologies that we use today. Mm -hmm. um, they, they understood that there had been fine works that had been done before theirs and that there would be fine works that would be done after theirs. There is not a single one of the King James translators. It would be King James only today. Uh, they would find it laughable and embarrassing that there would be people who would think that their translation has become, was somehow the result of supernatural um, intervention and inspiration between 1604 and 1611. They would be mortified. Um, so sometimes that helps to just simply point out that, you know, the King James translators said that any mean translation that, that is seeking to accurately render the original languages can be called the word of God. Not just ours, but those that came before us, those that will come after us. Um, they they were totally against any idea that you know this is it, and once we're done, that's going to be it for for the rest of the history of the church. So that can help. Um, sometimes pointing out that there are even different versions of the King James today. There's there's the Oxford edition and the uh, Cambridge edition, and they're not identical. Hmm. Uh, I think it's. Just off the top of my head, I think it's Jeremiah 34, 16. Uh, there's a difference between the Oxford and the Cambridge. And one says he, which is singular pronoun. One says ye, which is plural. Hmm. How would you know which one it is? Well, the King James only doesn't have any way of knowing because the King James is the final authority. Now, the answer is obvious. You go to the Hebrew because yeah. the the Hebrew uh, will tell you whether it's a plural or a singular. And if I recall correctly off the top of my head, I think it's, I think it's a singular, but it could be the other way. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, the point is that 
they have this standard that they can't themselves live up to. They can't actually utilize it in any meaningful fashion. And so it really depends on what, uh, part of it depends on what they think um, they're, what's, what are they, what arguments have they heard mm -hmm. that they've internalized that speak the most loudly to them? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what kind of, well, what kind of stuff uh, did your Facebook friend say to you about the SV? What was, was it, was it about manuscripts? Was it about, um, you know, what, what, what was he throwing at you? Well, it kind of, and this kind of leads into what you talked about on that second night, as far as he went more into the, the translations and the reliability, as far as, you know, the, the more the, the Bible's translated and the further you get away, right, it starts to lose a lot, um, some of its, I guess, trust or, you know, it's changed over time. And I did like that you made the point that, you know, we have more evidence and more documentation now than we did in 1604 when they started translating. So it would, you would think that that would make it more accurate, more likely to be accurate um, than it was. So he was then. actually, so he was actually saying that since it's been 400 years that, that that puts us farther away, it can't be as accurate because I mean, that's, we're still, we're still translating the same texts. And in reality, we now have texts that are, are, well, uh, hundreds of years earlier than anything that was available to the King James translators themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, if you look at the TR, that's pretty much a, uh, a Greek text that's based upon the about the 12th and 13th century Greek text. And now we have stuff that's 1,100 years closer than that. So if what you want is to get as close to the original as possible, we're in far better shape now than, than they were back then. But again, they don't think that way. Uh, they're just not aware of what sources we use to do the translations. And again, that epistle to the readers from the King James translators themselves lays a lot of that stuff out. It actually does a good job. Um, and you could just simply say, hey, if we, if we apply what the King James translators said back then to today, they would say, go with those translations <laughs> because they would recognize uh, the superiority of the manuscripts that we have today and, and, and things like that. But that's just, that's beyond your average King James only as per situation. So what, I, what I'm thankful has happened over time is if you read the King James only controversy, the book, you see that most of it's just giving that history. It is talking about where the, where the New Testament came from, how manuscripts are transmitted over time. Uh, there is a discussion of, of formal and dynamic equivalency and issues like that. That's, that's different than the manuscripts, but it all does come into um, why there are differences between translations and, and issues regarding the King James. But there has to be some level of education yeah. um, for the person be, to be able to start seeing the inconsistencies of the King James position. Uh, it's just, it's just necessary. And well, that was a thought um, that I had as we were listening through again to your talk is, and you know, I, I don't know if you have an answer to this, but in my mind, I was thinking like as wicked as this world is today, like why is this a sword that they want to die on? I mean, as far as going to call you antichrist and why is that a battle you want to fight when the world is so wicked yeah. and you're throwing brothers and sisters under the bus essentially well uh they they don't they don't consider me a brother or sister and they can they have been taught um uh, that yes the world uh is wicked and it's just about to end um and so we don't have to worry about um building for the future or anything like that and so since it's just about to go go down then those people, the James Whites of the world, the Dan Wallaces of the world, et cetera, et cetera, those people are actually part of the mechanism to uh, drag us away from our one sure defense, which is the King James version of the Bible. Isn't it kind so, of idolatry? It, 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 the, cult, the cultic version of King James onlyism is very idolatrous. It really does set up a, a, an authority 
outside of God. Um, and uh -huh. it, it does, it, yeah, once you start making a Bible, a, a 17th century Anglican translation of the Bible, the standard of whether someone is a Christian, uh, yeah, that, that definitely enters into the field of, uh, of idolatry. And so um, there are a number of these, these groups that will actually say that if you were converted, let's say whoever uh, shared the gospel with you was using an ESV, um, that, since that's not the word of God and you are born again by the word of God, then you probably are not a Christian. A you may have repented the in gospel just through somebody paraphrasing. It's not like they're reading from a Bible when they hear the gospel. <laughs> yeah, but even even what they're saying needs to be rooted in the the King James version of the Bible, and uh, the the Bible verses need to be read from the King James version of the Bible. And uh, that narrow I, road is even more narrow. <laughs> oh, it's it's uh, it's exceptionally narrow. Yeah, it's 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 sad and. Yeah. And uh, of course, these groups tend to be extremely small and splintered, even from one another. They tend to divide over mm. the smallest thing as well. And you can understand why, why that would be. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes when you're, when you're looking at what's happening and worldwide global totalitarianism descending on us at the speed of sound, you sort of go, why are we even talking about these things? But I've seen so many uh, people especially over the past, I don't know, five, six years, I started noticing like at G3 and conferences like that when I, when I would meet with people and you get this line and, and people come up and sign books and take pictures and do stuff like that. Um, the more and more people would be, would be saying, you know, you got us out of a, an abusive church um, and now we're... Okay. We're in a church where we're really growing and and we're we're discovering so much more about the Christian faith, stuff like that. And it's not like it, and many of them would say it it was it's you and Jeff Durbin, my fellow pastor at Apologia. And I I can tell you, Jeff and I have never sat down at any time and said, Hey, let's let's make this a focus of yeah. what we're doing or what we're saying or what we're preaching. Never never once crossed our mind i think just simply what happens is these guys know that stuff's going on their leaders aren't giving them any kind of meaningful uh direction it's just the same thing over and over again it's hey man hey man you know it's just mm -hmm. it, it, it's just this strange odd cadence of preaching but it's on the same subjects over and over again and they're not engaging the culture and so they start looking around and they start finding the people that are, and we're not dressed in suits and ties, and mm -hmm. um, we look a little bit different. And but they start listening, and if they're really believers, what they hear really resonates with them. Yeah. And it 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 sometimes takes a few years, um, and it can be a very fearful process because I mean they're literally, I can't <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I I back in two thousand. I don't, remember what, don't know why I remember this, but in 2008, I remember doing a series, and this was one of the subjects I talked about, um, at a church in Houston. And I remember uh, the founding pastors there, the elders, uh, told me that their church had grown out of um, their experience at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where they had to carry my book, The Potter's Freedom, in a brown paper cover. So, cause you weren't allowed to have it on campus wow. and they would literally meet. You were contraband. <laughs> it was contraband. They would literally meet in a dorm room and they would put towels along the bottom of, they'd lock the door, put towels, pull the shades and, and, and gather around to listen to the dividing line and stuff like that. And it, it's just, it, it's just that, that mindset even more so amongst the IFB where these people are held in place by fear. Wow. Um, and so you, it, it's great to get to release people from that fear, but what it means it's, yeah. it's very frequently a very You're not challenging and difficult process on their part. 
Yeah. Yeah. People are being set free from that. So yeah, that's good. It isn't just a waste to just debate it just for the sake of debating. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the, the debates obviously are, are, are what catch people's attention though. Yeah, I mean, um, there have been a couple uh, guys that have been willing to debate and the fact of the matter is it always goes very badly for them, which is why, you know, I've got some guys right now who are former IFB and they've got a lot of connections and they're doing everything they can to try to get some of their main leaders to step up and, and, mm. you know, I'm willing to come there, uh, have with, have fifth wheel, we'll travel. Um, mm. but they, they, no, mm. because the, the guys that have, um, like, uh, Jack Mormon in London, uh, and I think that was probably why he did it was it was in London and not Georgia or West Virginia mm. or South Carolina or something like that. But, you know, there are video cameras. It's now it's out there forever. It was uh, 10 years ago now. And that's one of the only ones I can point to because the other folks just that and the John Ankerberg series uh, that we did in 1995 uh, when I had hair and round glasses and all sorts of stuff like that uh some people don't even recognize me they go the voice sounds familiar and it's like oh wow um but that but that's there's just a couple of those that are that are out there and um they are very strongly discouraged from even viewing stuff like that it's very similar to jehovah's witnesses it's very similar to the control the control type situation with jehovah's witnesses well, I did like to, I mean, you did make the point, which I thought was important that you're at least, I'm pretty sure I'm quoting you here that you did say that you're not opposed to the King James. I mean, you think it's a fine translation. You're just not, like she said, kind of idolatrous towards it. It's Yeah, I'm opposed to King James onlyism. Right. Uh, a lot of my, my memory verses still come out in the King James. Um, I don't believe that the King James, the King James translators honestly would be going guys um that that was it, it's been 400 years if you haven't been able to improve anything by then you guys have got a problem um and so i am i, I would say that we have a much better text today than they had then and therefore to not utilize um for example the papyri that have been discovered and and things like that um is 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 to basically say to God, thank you very much for all this extra information, but we're good. <laughs> we, we got it. We got it 400 years ago. No. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect um, that, especially in apologetics and things like that, limiting ourselves to the 16th century Greek text is, uh, is an appropriate thing to do. Um, so for example, the new King James, I think that's an excellent translation of an inferior text. It, the text is inferior because it's 400 years behind the times. It's 400 years behind all the discoveries and all the research and everything else that we've done. Um, it's great translation, but it's translating something that, uh, I, again, like I pointed out that night, if you take the same method of hermeneutics and interpretation to interpret the, the King James or the New King James as you do the ESV or NASB, they're all, they're all going to be preaching and teaching the same faith. Um, but especially when you're doing apologetics and you're having to deal with um, the Bart Ehrmans of the world who are uh, telling us that our Bibles have been radically altered and things like that, you can't, hmm. you can't be doing that from the 16th century. You need Bart Ehrmans in the 21st century. We need to be in the 21st century uh, responding to him as well. So there's a vast difference between being opposed to King James onlyism and being opposed to the King James. Mm -hmm. uh, but they don't in uh, if you make the king james bible alone equals the word of god alone then they they can't make that distinction in their thinking you're you're opposed to the word of god you you are opposed to god's word I've, it's been said to me over and over again um yeah. despite the fact that i've there? i've defended scripture against muslims and atheists and everything else in all sorts mm -hmm. of different contexts it doesn't make any sense but they've made that equation in their mind and they're, they're stuck with it. Mm -hmm. And you made it clear, I mean, at least in our teaching, I'm sure you've done it in all your teachings. And you said, I mean, the death nail, as you called it, was what did the, what did the apostles write? Like, and whatever gets you closer to that, 
it's hard to imagine that that would be a conflict <laughs> amongst. But Christians. it is, uh, but it is because even, even some of my uh, reformed brethren will, uh, will say, well, the only way to really know what the apostles wrote is, is through the tradition that God has given to us. And since God used the Textus Receptus as the foundation for um, the great confessions of faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith or whatever, uh, that's what we need to stick with. And I've even been told that I'm not, I can't be a confessional Reformed Baptist uh, because the London Baptist Confession uses the King James basically or the Texas Receptus, if you want to go to the original language text. And therefore, if, since the London Baptist Confession cites 1 John 5, 7, and there is absolutely no chance that 1 John 5, 7 is original, well, that means you're not confessional. That means you're, you're not holding to that, that tradition. And of course, my response is, I'm sorry, but none of the framers of the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession had one fiftieth of the information available to them that we have today. So to try to drag them into this and say they made a decision for that perspective when no one, no one knew about text types, no one had any, there, was, there were no catalogs of manuscripts, there were no collations of manuscripts. You, you, I mean, even the King James translators did not use Greek manuscripts. They used printed editions of the Greek text. I have, I have my, well, I have my, here. <clears throat> musical interlude uh here is my 1550 stephanus um this is not a facsimile uh this was published in 1550 it uh, is appraised at thirty-five thousand dollars, and this is the book of acts and this was uh the last uh printed greek new testament before robert stephanus who did this inserted the verse divisions into the new testament so there are no there are no there's no john 3 16 here there's a john 3 there's no john 3 16 because there are no verses yet the next year he put the verses in but this remained extremely popular because of how big it was and how easy to read it is yeah. the 1551 edition he did was much smaller and i i can tell you as i i'm about i'm getting close to turning 60 why i would prefer this over the small edition oh yeah <laughs> um uh, much much re more readable but this this is what the king james translators used they used uh erasmus they, they used his editions they used the 1550 stephanus they used the 1598 beza and um so they used printed editions they didn't they didn't go to the manuscripts okay. and so there was a very small number of manuscripts that were used in the production of these printed editions uh less than 20 by the time you get to beza and we have 5,818 today, um, let alone how many more in other languages that we've, that we've discovered. So um, it's just, it's a different world. And so to try to drag the writers, the confessions in and say, well, they made this decision. No, they didn't. They didn't know these things. So they didn't make a decision one way or the other. To try to, try to get dead people to vote on this debate <laughs> uh, reminds me of the 2020 election, but let's not get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, I don't know if this is necessarily even unique. Um, I'm sure, and you might know more on this, or maybe I'm completely off base, but um, when Martin Luther, he translated um, at least portions, if not the whole Bible, right into German. And didn't the, the German people at the time even push back and get upset that he would even write the Bible in their language? I could be off base, but I thought they even well, at least a portion of them got upset that it would not. Well, matter. the Roman the Roman Church obviously uh, uh, wanted to maintain control over translations. There had been previous, uh, there had been previous German translations, but they were not generally available to the people. And Luther did the New Testament while he was hiding from Charles uh, V at the Wartburg Castle. I visited the room where he worked, in fact, mm -hmm. and. Um, then later with help from others, because he wasn't as good in Hebrew as he was in, uh, in uh, Greek, uh, later the entire Bible was, uh, was, was translated. And the main thing with, with Luther was he wanted every plowboy uh, to have a copy of the scriptures. And so 
the Lutherans started what a monster. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, what a monster. Uh, the the they they started Sunday schools and and publication societies and the Lutherans have always been really good at that at, at getting the word out there and so uh, that was considered scandalous to Rome mm-hmm. um, and certainly in the preceding centuries uh, you had the Lollards in in uh, in England the followers of John Wycliffe who memorized his translation um, even though it, it was burnt by the church. Um, they memorized it and um, uh, would get together and they would actually take this beautiful thing. They would take the name, they would each memorize a different book of the Bible and then they would take the name of that the book that they memorized. And their worship services would be various people standing up and reciting from what they had memorized. And that's how they had scripture because they couldn't have it in written form. Um, they had it uh, in, in a memorized form that way in English. That was that was what was so special to them was it was it was in English that it was being uh, they were hearing it instead of in the Latin. Yeah. Well, I know um, just kind of just talking about as far as you know studying scripture and stuff. One of the things that you had talked about in your New Testament re- uh, reliability, I guess it wasn't necessarily on the rely or re- uh, reliability, but you made a statement in there about. Um, that we're not talking about this stuff in Sunday schools, you know, cause we're too busy entertaining these kids with pizza parties. And, you know, yeah. we have four children and we've complained for years about how bad Sunday school. And it seems like, you know, you just get whatever 23 year old that just left Bible college and plays Fortnite, And <laughs> it's all like fun. Plays but- what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sorry. Yeah. Just find a 13 year old and they'll show you. Okay. All right. But uh, yeah. And it's like, youth ministry has kind of just become a hangout mm-hmm. and then most youth ministers are using it only as a platform mm-hmm. to a, a bigger office and mm-hmm. I don't know when this started or how to correct it but I know as parents it drives us crazy yeah yeah we don't uh, I, I can tell you that um, in in at Apologia and at the church where I was beforehand for 29 and a half years uh, there was no quote-unquote youth ministry there were um, there were great godly men that were involved as Sunday school teachers and things like that. But uh, we have everybody's in the worship service at, mm-hmm. at Apologia. There's, there's not even a nursery where the babies are in there. Um, some people complain. And, I, and I, I'll, I'll admit the first two Sundays uh, that I was at Apologia, given that you could hear other people's stomachs rumbling uh, <laughs> at the church I was at before, it was so quiet. Uh, that's how you knew the sermon was going to be wrapping up fairly soon. Um, but um, uh, being an apology the first two weeks was a little tough. But honestly, I don't even hear it anymore. Um, you don't, you don't, you're not distracted by it. Nothing. But if you listen to, you know, I'm preaching Sunday. I'll be preaching Psalm 12 uh, at Apology on Sunday, and and if you listen and turn up loud enough, you'll hear kids because they're all there. And uh, so uh, they all know who the elders are. I can't tell you how many um, pictures I have been given by our kids growing up at Apologia, not my kids, but just all the kids of me, how many different artistic renderings of the strange looking Scottish man uh, preaching Mm -hmm. from the pulpit uh, that I've gotten from our kids. And I think that's awesome. That's great. But to the point that you were making, um, we don't, you know, we, well, at, okay, at, at church I was at before and at apology, we do do this. We do uh, prepare the young people before they go out into universities. Um, we, we train them about the history of the Bible and where it actually came from. My, my daughter, uh, when she went to Glendale Community College, her first semester, she had a rabidly nasty anti-Christian professor, just vilely so. <laughs> and she's coming home and telling me about this guy. And finally, one day he got onto the gospels and she knew that what he was saying was bunk. Um, and she had tried to just patiently bear with it, but finally she's, she puts her <laughs> hand up 
and she challenges the guy and he just loses it and the final thing he says to her is uh, it was about the authorship of the gospel well google it <laughs> google it because oh, no. she had pointed out he was wrong about the language in which the new testament was written and you know i have video of her sitting in the front row at nine years of age while i'm debating muslims in new york you know i mean she's she's gone to this stuff her entire life uh, so she's me in a female body. It's sort of scary. Um, so uh, she has her own webcast. It's really popular. You've probably heard of Sheologians and stuff. And and um, uh, she and her friend uh, uh, Joy have been doing a podcast called Sheologians for like over five years now. And uh, uh, yeah, oh yeah, it's it's got a big following. And if you haven't heard it before, check it out. Um, but um, in fact, they've had me on a few times and uh, especially check out if you want to hear if you want to entertain your kids with something other than worldly entertainment, uh, in, in February of 2019, if you go to sheologians.com, I was on for two episodes in a row and I told the story of the Munster rebellion, the rebellion of the city of Munster, uh, in the mid 1530s. And I've taught church history since the 1990s. And I can guarantee you, it is the weirdest, wildest church history story ever. I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to listen. And the kids, I think even the kids would be sitting there going, really? <laughs> what? They did? No, come on. <laughs> because because Summer, Summer even hadn't heard it. And so she's she's like, no way. I'm like, no, yes way. So yeah, do that. Uh, check, 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 check that out. And then you'll, you'll probably be hooked to sheologians after that. But anyways, um, our kids are prepared, but we send our kids off and they run into people like this Dr. Carter that she had, and they don't have any idea what to say in response. Mm -hmm. they, they've never even heard of this kind of stuff before. And we wonder why they lose their faith. Uh, this has to be stuff that we are talking about in the church. It has to be stuff that that our, our parents understand, our grandparents understand, to be able to pass this on uh, to, to young people. It's, it's vitally important. Did you say it was 80% lose their faith when they go to college? That, I've heard that. I've heard that number. Heard that number? Um, I'm not sure how you're determining who had faith and who didn't before they Right, because we all know Christians who've gone to college and completely lost their faith in it. We all right. know full or more. Right. And that there's a lot of nominalism and that's when nominalism will, will show itself. Mm -hmm. there, there's no question about it, but still we don't uh, prepare our people. Right. And part of it is because the idea is you don't talk about complicated subjects mm -hmm. in the pulpit. Um, well, uh, you, you need to, uh, you need to, there's, there's just, there's, there's no two ways about it. And um, uh, hopefully if anything has come has been coming out of the past couple of years, that we've been facing in the church, it's like, yeah, there needs to be a time when you deal with tough subjects because we're facing really tough subjects mm -hmm. as to the relationship of church and state and yeah. everything else that goes along with that. And if we're not talking about it in the service, then what are we talking about? Right. Yeah, I mean, we absolutely agree. I, you know, it took us decades and generations to get in the mess that we're in today, and we're not going to fix it by reelecting a Donald Trump or whatever in 2024, you know, we're decades and generations from probably getting the, the country back on track without a move of God. So, um, well, I, I don't, I don't, don't even get me started on that. Uh, I'm not even sure there's a country to get back on track, but I can, I can guarantee you one thing, the, the enemy that we face today is secularism. Secularism is the negation yeah. of everything that Jesus taught and died for. Yeah. It is the greatest enemy that I feel uh, has ever arisen against the church. Even Rome at least acknowledged the existence of deities. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so secularism uh, teaches you, you can't tell the difference between a boy and a girl. Right. You can't uh, understand there's the beauty of motherhood or fatherhood. Right. It is the most anti-human mm -hmm. destructive thing that has ever arisen in the history of the church of in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And there may be a very, very dark time coming, but there's one thing I'm absolutely certain of. Um, secularism cannot sustain itself over time. Um, when, you, when, you, when you tell people you can't, you can't know the 
a male or a female, that insanity cannot sustain itself. How do you get rid uh, of it, it to the next generation if they're teaching it to their kids? It's like, and they are, and that's, and they that. are, that's so just it. That's, that's, yeah, it's, it's just it's, gotten yeah. worse. Yeah. So um, that's a whole other issue, but yeah. we need to know, we need to know that the, the scriptures that we have, have been transmitted to us accurately to be able to respond to those, uh, those yep. things as well. So that's why this is important. Absolutely. And uh, we did just want to touch on uh, a couple topics that we thought you just sort of fit the mold very well. Um, you may not even know, but we've been kind of reviewing this podcast called the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And um, mm -hmm. they just brought up some points that I thought you would maybe be able to speak on as far as being a church leader and, um, you know, being in ministry forever. And one of the questions that, you know, we kind of came back to, um, not forever, obviously, but, uh, you know, excuse me, uh, distinguished gentleman. Um, but, you know, one of the things that Mark Driscoll, um, that we kind of saw was that his, as his fame rose, you know, he, you know, stopped being the guy that he was to start. So our question for you was kind of, you know, not that you're, I don't know if you consider yourself famous, but we would consider you at least moderately for us, you know, so as your, your name and your notoriety, I guess, has gotten out there and more people are seeking your, you know, attention and your time, I guess, what have you done in your life to kind of make sure you at least, you know, you stay humble and then stay in the scriptures um, mm -hmm. so that you don't fall away like all these other pastors? Um, you know, I, I saw some of the Driscoll stuff from a distance and he's actually here in Phoenix. Now, uh, of course, Phoenix, is, most people don't know is Phoenix, is the fifth largest city in the United States. So saying you're in Phoenix doesn't really mean a whole okay. lot. Um, it's uh, it's pretty massive, but uh, you can start, you can start driving on a freeway in Northwest Phoenix at 65 miles per hour. And uh, an hour and a half later, you'll still be in the Valley of the sun <laughs> really? uh, in the, uh, in the Southeast Valley. Um, it's that big, but anyway, um, I didn't, I sort of followed some of it from afar and I was just sort of like, um, okay, I, I don't really don't know much about this. I was hearing about it from other people. Um, I know one thing when I was traveling, like in 2019, I flew 165,000 miles. Um, when I was traveling, that's when I discovered how well known I'd become because you're walking through airports anywhere in the world. And all of a sudden someone's pointing at you and coming up to you and wanting you to sign their book or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that certainly, that certainly is a reminder that even if you're having a really bad day, um, never get impatient with the lady at the check-in counter. You don't know who's watching <laughs> you know? or, or who's doing this number from, you know, yeah. you'll know, oh, be on YouTube as uh, yeah, going to YouTube that one. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Um, so the, you know, when that started happening, you're, you're start, start going, oh, um, okay. But it was never something that I, A, ever got used to, uh, or B, ever expected, and hence, C, ever desired. So, um, you know, when I, we were just a G3, and I'd literally have to have an escort to get anywhere because everyone would stop me, and yeah. I wouldn't be able to get to where I was supposed to speak or, you know, record mm -hmm. video or whatever because everybody wants to tell me their life story. And I think it's wonderful. That's great at the proper time, but that kind of thing, I don't thrive on that. It's, 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 it's exciting for a while in the sense that you get to hear, uh, you know, uh, I, this one is in two nights in a row as I was coming back. In fact, right after um, when I was with you guys, um, I had guys telling me, that it was my debates on Roman Catholicism that I did back in the 1990s hmm. that led them out of Roman Catholicism. And, and it's just like, that's really encouraging and that's exciting uh, because, you know, no one had any idea who I was or what we were doing in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. So to see that something could, you know, have that kind of benefit that far down the road, I think that's exciting. Um, but look, I'm a churchman. Um, I... I don't consider myself, you know, you all mentioned, you know, that I, I preached that morning, by the way, that's the way I like to preach. Um, that's, that's most comfortable for me, especially when I'm traveling is just simply to open up a text in the original language and let the language no, uh, be the, be the, the commentary. Mm -hmm. uh, 
sorry that I'm looking distracted here, but um, I have a truck out in a parking lot and uh, we are in Phoenix. And I don't know <laughs> if it's happening where you are. Yes. Uh, oh, they're, stealing, they're stealing catalytic converters Ooh. off of vehicles and they can do it in less than a minute. And most of the time it'll cost you a thousand bucks to, to replace it. I mean, literally they just dive under your vehicle with a saw and chop the thing off and take off. It's just, it's just unbelievable. You know, it's amazing. If they would just put that ingenuity towards That's, respectable means, they'd be very successful. People. I know, but there's precious metals in catalytic converter. <laughs> and so, um, so out there? no, we have, we have, we have external cameras and my, my truck is alone out there and a van pulled up next to it just now. And I'm just watching the guy wandering around out there. So um, if all of a sudden I go back later, uh, then you'll know that uh, he started messing around with my truck. So you got uh, that sword behind you. So you'll be all right. That's not what I'd be taking out there. <laughs> I got something out of the out of camera shot that'd be more effective. Um, but uh, anyways, um, what were we talking about? Uh, we, we were talking about, I'm a churchman. And so when I preach, um, I'm not trying to, I don't consider myself a great preacher or anything like that at all. I'm a much better teacher than I am a preacher, but I have to be in the word regularly in when teaching and preaching in the church. Um, and I, I really think that's, if you're actually doing it right and you're not just the guy who shows up on sun, on sun, on Sundays, but then on the rest of the week, you're golfing with big wigs and stuff mm -hmm. like that. If you're actually involved in ministry in the church, um, I think that's one of the most grounding things you could you could ever you could ever have. Um, so that's one of the one of the one of the things. You know, I've got people around me. Um, you know, Rich and then my fellow elders and and things like that. That if I started getting wild and wacky like he did, they're not going to sit around and say, "Oh yeah, sure, you you go ahead and do that." They're going to slap me upside the head. So. Uh, you need to, right. you need to have that as that as well. Set up accountability around yourself and yeah. Yeah. Tell people and you know, when I get out of line, you need to put me back in check. <laughs> and you know, I, um, this is actually related. I, when, when we found out that we were expecting our first child back in 1986, six, yeah. 1986. Um, I asked my dad, um, uh, I remember asking him, I said, dad, what did you, how did you instill in me um, such a, a fear of dishonoring you and mom? Mm -hmm. Because when I was a teenager, you know, there's time comes when you're a teenager, you got a car, you got a vehicle, you're, you're a raging pile of hormones, and there's lots of ways you can get in trouble at, at, that, at that point in time, and lots of opportunities to do it. Um, but I never did. And one of the main reasons I never did was because I didn't want to see the look on your face. Mm. And Lord used that. Um, how did you do that? And uh, if you're sitting there and have pen and paper ready, um, my dad's response was, son, I have no idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so obviously, though, it was just simply we were in church, we were taught word of God, there was, um, there was a re teaching of re respect and, and, and accountability to your parents mm -hmm. and that you reflected upon them. Like I, I was raised to believe once you turn 18, you need to be accountable for you. And so I got married at 19. I got engaged at 18. Mm -hmm. And people look at that today, like, I know, <laughs> how it's like um i i'm i've already got four grandkids and i can run and play with them yeah. and do go. all sorts and and i if the lord wills i might be able to do that with my great-grandchildren yeah. that's sort of how people used to do stuff yeah. actually what um, a joy that'll be yeah so. oh yeah it's it, it's it's awesome but um, there was an accountability there was, and I think that has obviously come through to the rest of my ministry as well, mm -hmm. is that it's not just my dad being disappointed, but that that's just reflective of, I want to honor God. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's, in, that's pretty important as, as well.
Well, that was one of the other things that we sort of saw um, just as we're watching this or listening to this podcast where, you know, a lead pastor and elders that weren't really holding each other accountable. Um, so you obviously as a, a church leader and having elders around you, I was curious how you either handle or how you would handle a situation with, you know, maybe uh, elders and pastors that aren't seeing eye to eye, or maybe even worse, where it's a toxic situation, where it seemed to be at that church, you know, toxic situation between a, a pastor and elders and different pastors in the same church. Yeah, uh, division is really, really, really hard to deal with. There's no two ways about it. Um, but especially where I am right now, where we have four men, um, you know, there's a real, um, th there's a real willingness on everyone's part to be able to speak up and to say, I, you know, I'm not sure that's the way we need to do, do things. And I'm concerned about this. And, and we've had to face disciplinary issues and things like that. And there's, we've had to talk through it because like, no, I'm, I'm, I don't think that's the way we should go. I think we should do this. And it's like, well, I'm not sure about that. And we're, we're, discussing one subject right now that we need to we need to work through uh as a group but there isn't um i don't know again i've, I've not listened i don't know all the biscuit yeah. stuff but but you start getting money issues and power issues and books and fame and stuff like that mm -hmm. and that's where the toxicity started mm -hmm. coming in and and if you feel if you surround yourself with just yes men mm -hmm. um then that's that's where the that's where the, the problem comes um and if you're the one, one big, big, big guy, and nobody has any idea who the other people are, they're going to be hesitant to really um, take a stand. And, uh, and if you can then get rid of them when they, when they do, uh, that's a non-functional situation. No, no two ways about it. But, um, you know, this is the largest church that I've been associated with in a leadership position. I mean, I was a member of a church that had 20,000 members, um, but that was the Southern Baptist Church, and you can only find seven to eight thousand people at any given time um so uh and i saw some of the inward workings there and i don't want to i don't want to be a part of anything that big not not interested in it um mm -hmm. uh, there are lots of temptations and yeah it's not a not a positive thing yeah i just that seems like a very uh, i don't know if that's something that's laid out as you're bringing elders on you know that hey it kind of hears the expectations you know, yeah, that is too far to the left or the right or, um, no, I, I think it's pretty clearly laid out. Yeah. There is a, there's actually a, a whole list of things you go through, uh, at our church anyways, that were pretty specific. And, um, okay. um, so yeah, it would be, it would be expected. No toys about it. That's good to hear. Uh, cause it sounds like a dicey situation and I'm sure that that's not the only church that that's happened yet, especially oh, when oh. you're that big. And I mean, we, mega churches are are a thing in this country now and celebrity pastors and they won't be for long <laughs> into all kinds of churches i mean you know he's in the air force and we've moved how many times how many different states and so we haven't been to like just specific denominations always christian you know we've been to charismatic you know pentecostal type baptist then reformed baptist you know and now we're the sovereign grace which with this, where we want to stick, we're not just being so casual about where we go to church now, but our main concern now is the leadership and, you know, it, we don't want to go somewhere where they push the, that wild kids ministry. And I don't know why they call it ministry because it really is just a big, you know, bounty houses and stuff and craziness where we were before there was, it was pretty crazy. And the kids confess now like that wasn't a godly place they were they let any kid come along and, and they're yeah. not christian at all she's they'd say it's worse than going to school and yeah i just yeah. i remember uh uh one day uh we were coming home from church and and uh my daughter was in ninth grade in a christian school and she says from the back, back seat, she says, um, I want to go to Cortez, which is our local public high school. And, you know, we're paying, we're, we're paying more than our uh, mortgage to have the kids in Christian school. Yeah. And she says, uh, I want to go to Cortez. And 
we said, well, why? And her answer was, I prefer my pagans straight up. <laughs> A wise young lady. And, and, and basically what she, what she said was she said, I, I, she's at a Christian school. And she said, I only know of one other Christian girl at my school. Wow. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Now she's homeschooling her kids. <laughs> uh, that was, that was years ago. She's home, homeschooling her kids. But uh, yeah, that was, that was her, her thought about that situation. So. Yeah. We have been trying to sound that clarion call to everybody. We can like get your kids out of school. Don't think because they're in a Christian school that that's in any way Christian. Uh, it depends on the Christian school, obviously. Um, this one, uh, so many of them are so financially strapped mm -hmm. that they can't have standards. Oh, okay. And that's, that's where the problem comes the that's where that. the problem comes in. So they, they've got to have people in those seats and therefore, yeah. You know, so anyway, no. didn't want to get into that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just had one last question. It's kind of off topic, but she had mentioned that we were Air Force and, you know, something that's been weighing pretty heavily on my heart in the last, you know, just hit 16 years in. But as we mentioned earlier, it's wicked and anti-Christ is this nation, especially at the national leadership level is you know, how would you instruct somebody who's maybe even looking to potentially join? I, I know how I feel like I would instruct them um, to avoid, but, you know, going to work for this government, like, is it better to be, you know, be in the fight so, or just remove yourself from it because it's, it's not getting better right away. I mean, no, it's, it's, worse. it's not getting better. I, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. I, we, um, Apologia became involved in trying to help the SEALs that were basically deactivated uh, over the vaccine stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I just, I just uh, uh, saw a, a graph and the underlying data from the government of the United Kingdom that produced the graph um, for over six months now. The total mortality um, in the United Kingdom, not only is up above where it's been, but since they track vaccinated and unvaccinated, vaccinated have twice the mortality rate as the unvaccinated for the past six months in England. Twice. And That's you're wild. just like, no one will talk about it. Right. Um, they, they can't, won't look into it, but we are facing an, an amazing, utterly unique situation. Mm -hmm. And hence, any answer I would have given in 2019 about uh, military service, um, now looking at what's the fact that the United States military is being used as a pawn, mm -hmm. um, it seems to me they want people out who would mm -hmm. dare to go, there's this thing called the Constitution, right. and so I'm not sure that what we're doing here is a really... Um, so I, I don't know how faithful people are going to be able to navigate, um, what's coming. And, um, that's one of the big, one of the big issues is, uh, we're seeing, we've already had so many people in our own uh, church, uh, that have lost, uh, jobs and lost income, um, because they would not do what was demanded of them, which mm -hmm. was against their, their convictions. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you, we look at Austria, Austria just announced that in January, if you're going to live in Austria, you will submit. And um, yeah, if we remain more sane country, we might be going to liberate those people. Right. Uh, you would think, um, but that's, we're, we're going down the same road. And um, so I don't, I don't know. Um, I wish I had answers. Um, as things arise, we try to apply godly principles, but we are, we are, we're looking at unique situations that, that are global. And I have good friends in, in Frankfurt, Germany, and they pastors, and they're really struggling. Oh. They're, they're really struggling because the pressure coming upon them um, to, to submit. And they know once they submit to this, 
that's not the that's not the last thing right no. the next thing and the next thing and the next thing it gets more onerous onerous each time you you, you go on they know that yeah but it's splitting churches it's mm -hmm. it's a very very challenging time period no no ways about it so. yeah doesn't oh, like stop like nothing like ending on a high note no no but i mean yeah you know we talk about that quite regularly on uh, this podcast i mean uh this podcast was kind of birthed out of me really for the first time reading and learning about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I thought, man, we could use a Bonhoeffer today. Um, but, you know, having men like you um, and for anybody that doesn't follow Dr. White on Twitter, uh, I highly encourage it. Uh, well, I won't be there for long. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, for while you're there, uh, definitely, definitely enjoy following because we don't get enough. I don't feel like uh, pastors are really church leaders speaking about, they seem to be shy or shy away from speaking about current issues, current issues. Um, <laughs> which I feel like all of the scriptures that we read are, you know, the apostles and stuff taking on the issues of the day and yeah. reminding people how to live in those situations. And mm -hmm. I don't feel like there's enough men like you that are willing to kind of, you know, jump into the fire and take the arrows. And it's a real shame. I posted a, a thread on Twitter today on the subject of Molinism, fairly complicated one on theology. And there was this one guy that uh, commented, uh, I really miss the old James White, but oh. once in a while, a glimmer still comes through like this thread. So in other words, uh, he's saying the exact opposite of what you just said. And that is, <laughs> this is all you should be doing. You should just be doing the in-depth theology stuff and all this stuff about what's going on in the world, just, just leave well, it Well, I think it's comforting to think that that's all that needs to be talked about <laughs> is, hey, let's, let's debate, you know, theology issues when really, I mean, like you mentioned, we're staring wickedness in the eyes. And, yeah, and churches are dividing. We need to talk about the issues that are dividing. But we have a million questions to ask you and I, you know, we could do this forever, <laughs> but uh, we want to let you go so we don't got you here all night. We certainly appreciate having you. This was a yeah. blessing for us having you down here preaching and teaching us was a blessing. And if you ever pass through uh, this panhandle area again, we would love to have Hopefully you. Hopefully better weather. <laughs> the driving oh. won't be better, I promise. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Hope it was useful. And uh, yeah, we'll be, we'll be coming by that direction again. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks. God bless. God bless. All right. So as we get ready to wrap this episode up, is there any last things you'd like to say? Oh, it was just really nice getting to, to talk with James White, and I really enjoyed hearing his stories, and it was really encouraging um, just hearing how he was raised and how he raised uh, his kids and looking forward to listening to his daughter's podcast, that's for sure. We'll have that linked here as well, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, go go give her a listen, Sheologians, um, and go give him a follow. You know, I, I know people's opinions can be mixed on uh, any church leader, you know, big name, you know, church pastor and stuff, people can be mixed on, but we need to support the men of action, the people that are mm -hmm. actually going out and taking the fight to the culture. And Dr. White, whatever your, you know, views on him are, he's doing that. He's doing it every day, mm -hmm. constantly, and we need to support men like him. So his Twitter handle will be down in the show notes. Um, we'll have links to the sermons and the teachings that he did when he came to visit us in Florida. Um, so please go support him. You don't got to believe with it or agree with him a hundred percent. You know, that's where freedom comes in, but we need to support these men to encourage them to continue doing this, the work that most of us are unwilling to do. So uh, that's all we got for you guys today. Love you. God bless.